From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. I have to admit, the topic of disaster survival comes up in my house probably more often than most. My husband has just a touch of what some people might call a prepper in him. But for better or worse, we're also just planners, warriors, always concerned with worst-case scenarios and, well, being prepared. I actually have a bag in my office in D.C. with sneakers, a map, water, and a protein bar in case I ever had to make it back to my family in the burbs on foot. And in fact, we already had some masks in the house stashed away when the coronavirus hit. So my interest was immediately piqued when I saw a Heritage Foundation op-ed explaining the type of person who survives a major disaster. In today's episode, we run through the five character traits that Jim Carafano, one of our favorite experts here at Heritage Explains, and also vice president of Heritage's Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy, says you should have if you want to survive a disaster. I have to say this has been one of my favorite conversations so far, and I think you're going to love it too. But before we jump in, I wanted to let you know about an exciting platform available from Heritage. While we can't host events in person right now, Heritage Events live hosts webinars every day on a variety of topics, ranging from ethics during the COVID-19 pandemic to the CARES Act and the economy. These webinars are free and you can join right from your home. You can find out more by going to heritage.org events or by checking out the link in our show notes. Okay, now on to our discussion. Jim, you started off your op-ed on this saying that most of the information out there on how to prepare for a disaster is wrong. What's wrong about it? So this is really interesting. A number of years ago, um, I got asked by um, a website that was starting to do ebooks to to do ebook, and I said, "Sure, what do you want it on?" And said, and they said, "The end of the world." <laughs> And, and I said, what do you mean? Well, how do you survive like really bad disasters? And I thought, well, that's a very interesting question. Uh, you know, it started at Heritage as a Homeland Security analyst. So I, I, I went to Katrina. I, I went to uh, the oil spill in Louisiana. I've been to other disasters. And I thought, well, this is really interesting. I've, I've even written a textbook on Homeland Security. And what was really interesting, so I started by surveying all the disaster literature and particularly all the government advice, you know, get duct tape, you know, have eight years of uh, distilled water in your basement. And, and what I figured out at the end, I thought, is that most of the advice that we get is really wrong because the advice focuses on what people should do. And what's really more important is who they are, because the reality is in a modern society like the United States, um, if you can live, if you don't have a, a catastrophic injury where you need to get to the hospital in an hour, right, you're, you're going to live. Um, it, you can go three days uh, without food and water. Um, so if you can get through 72 hours, you're going to live. And beyond that, it, unless there's some kind of exposure or cold or something else, you can literally live for weeks. Um and, and the reality is in every kind of disaster, even we've seen this in the pandemic, 
somebody's going to get assistance. If society is up and running, somebody's going to get assistance to you in, in probably within 72 hours. So whether it's surviving that 72 hours or, or longer, it's really about who you are rather than what you have done to stockpile toilet paper and other stuff. And so I started looking at what are the attributes of somebody who survives well? And this is actually very typical across, uh, across the United States. Uh, and, and the same things kept coming over and over again. So I decided that, concluded that the most likely person to survive a disaster is a high school educated church going yoga teacher with a gun. Hmm. And so that's, if I want, if people want to ask, what do I need to do survive? I just tell people be that person. Okay. So in this op-ed, um, which I love so much, which is why I asked you to do this podcast with me, who survives? What's the first factor? So don't be stupid. And, and what I mean by that is in order to survive in not just in disasters, but in, in many complex or stressful situation, it helps to have a modicum of education to be able to make kind of sound, prudent, rational judgments. Is this stupid or not? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean have a college education. We know a lot of stupid college educated people like all the kids that ran down a Florida on spring break and, and caught the COVID virus. Uh, matter of fact, you don't even necessarily have to have a high school diploma, though a high school ed- education is probably adequate. Uh, you certainly don't need to actually go to, to a formal school. You could be homeschooled, but the, but you need to know enough about the basics of life, physics, chemistry, biology, uh, economics, to, to be able to make responsible judgments because normally what we've seen is is if if we give people information that is credible understandable and actionable normally people will make kind of smart decisions a perfect example of this is look at social distancing that's largely endured and because now we're seeing protests against it but it endured because people said well this makes sense to do this and so wasn't wasn't the the law wasn't you know people with bayonets and, and you know and the military standing in the corner, it was people saying, okay, if it's a rational thing to do, I'll do it. And so I do think, you know, like most things in life, you're going to deal with things better if you have the mental capacity to make prudent everyday judgments about whether something is stupid or not. So definitely make sure your kids have an education and it's an education that matters. Um, we could debate a lot about, a lot of the aspects of liberal education that, well, we have to teach diversity and we have to teach, you know, this and we have, but, but the reality is, is if they don't understand basics, physics, biology, economics, chemistry, law, the constitution, how civil society works, uh, they're not prepared to deal with the everyday world, let alone the end of the world. Okay. What else? Get married. You know, conservatives, uh, put a lot of emphasis in in the institution of marriage. A lot of that's just being practical. If you look at the data, stable families by and large do better. They have better incomes. They have better outcomes for their children. Better education outcomes. Uh, better economic outcomes. And the reason for that is is there's something about a family structure which makes people 
more better able to deal with the world and more interested and caring about dealing with the world and caring about their communities. I mean, the, the family structure derived not from law, but really from nature. I mean, humans figured out long ago, a great way to survive is to band together in small uh, groups. Uh, people that are in a family structure, they care more about themselves. Uh, they care about their families. They care more about their communities. So they, they tend to be people that actually do better in, in disasters. This one was interesting to me, and, and I actually, now that I think about it, the whole little platoons idea definitely makes sense, but it threw me a little bit. Um, I don't know if you've heard of the rules of Zombieland, but one of them was no attachments. Um, and and when I imagine myself in doomsday scenarios, if I'm on the run or hiding out, only having to take care of myself and not worrying about how long I can carry my four-year-old, um, it seems to be easier, but but now that makes more sense. Yeah, our, our biology is just different than that. So, for example, a lot of the modern structure of human society really dates back to the Ice Age. And that was because in a very harsh environment, the humans as a species found that survival was much more likely if you banded together in groups uh, that care and stayed together in groups. As a matter of fact, one of the interesting things about language is the way our, the ability to learn a language is expressed through our genetics is really shaped by, by our experience during the Ice Age because the genes that facilitate learning a language kick on when you're very small. We all know that, right? And then they, they actually turn off at a young age, which is why normally most people have trouble learning other languages as adults because their brains aren't really wired for that. And people who actually can easily learn languages as an adult, it means that those genes, gene expressions never shut off and they're actually mutants. But, but the reason why that evolved, scientists think, is because during the Ice Age, having a common language bound people together in a tribe or a community, that was a good thing. But they didn't want people to just leave whenever they wanted. And so if you couldn't understand the language of another tribe or something, you had less, you, you're more likely to stay with the group that you were with. Mm -hmm. the, the, the family structure is, and there's an enormous amount of social science literature on this, is a very powerful, stable structure uh, that actually produces better outcomes. So we've seen, you know, we get a lot of, you know, they're reporting, well, the increased cases of spousal abuse and family violence and everything, you know, in quarantine. And, and that's true and understandable because of the stresses. My guess is many of those families that are experiencing that, those were not good, strong families to begin with. And just forcing them together is just kind of like throwing a gas, you know, match on the gasoline. What we don't hear about is, is and, and we see this every day on YouTube and TikTok and everything, you know, all these families doing these incredible things, really relying on their families, using their family to really as their, their energy, their source of strength, uh, their source of commitment. Uh, we've got some mutual friends you know, every day they're posting pictures on Instagram of um, her mother and the daughter in different Disney costumes just as a, as a family thing to do. But it's just a family structure. It's just a very, very resilient uh, uh, social grouping, which is why, yep, you're right. In the movies, everybody runs away and, and it's everybody for themselves. In reality, humans tend to do the opposite of that. Just like you said, the movies are always all wrong. Okay, what about being healthy? 
So I say yoga instructor, but that's really just a metaphor for being healthy. And there, there's two aspects to that. There is uh, obviously the, the medical aspect of if, if you don't have a debilitating medical condition, diabetes, uh, some kind of immune deficiency, uh, you're much more likely to survive in a disaster. And of course, the other thing is, is the healthier you are, the more resilient you are, the longer you're going to be able to withstand stress and other things. Um, this uh, really poignant story uh, about 9-11. Um, so a man was coming down the stairs because the elevators were out. And as he was coming down the, I, I don't know, 90, 100 floors, he came across a man who was sitting on the stairwell who was obviously very obese and, and overweight. And the guy was just having a, very, a lot of trouble walking. So he tried to help the guy down the stairs. They got down a few flights and then he just literally couldn't help the guy anymore. He said, okay, look, this is what I'm going to do. He says, you sit here and wait. I'm going to go downstairs. I'm going to get some help and I'll be back for you. So the, so he, he got down the other 80 something flights of stairs. And as soon as he walked out of the building, the building collapsed. So that, so that guy could have been somebody's wife, a husband, a, you know, could have been a father, grandfather. I, I don't know, but, he died simply because he was overweight. So your, your personal health is really important. That's, and part of that's your genetics, but part of it is diet and, and exercise. So whether you want to practice yoga, go for a jog or something, the healthier a person is, the reality is, is by and large, they're going to survive better. Yeah, that seems especially true in so many situations, and um, and especially in in this one. I know that even though my gym's closed, I'm still going out for a jog every day because that cardiovascular health in a situation where a virus is attacking your lungs seems so important. Right, and it's 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 not just about surviving a disaster; it's about quality of life, and of course, it's not just about physical health; it's your mental health as well. These things are directly linked together. Your, your mental health is significantly impacted by, by your physical health. And if you're, mentally health, if you're physically healthy, you're going to feel better. You're going to be more optimistic. Um, it's great. Actually, I don't know if you listen to The Voice. We love The Voice here. But the, the, uh, the, the senior mentor on The Voice this year is James Taylor. James Taylor, for many years, was a, a, an addict. Uh, and one of the ways he got over his addiction is he, he exercised three hours every day. And he did that to, to create the endorphins to replace the effects of the drugs. Mm -hmm. and, and, and really it was his to exercise that was one of the things that helped him fight through his addiction. Okay, so we have get educated, stay married, get healthy. You have faith as an important role in this. Yeah, go to church. Okay, so this is this is again not just something that you know conservatives love families and people that go to church. There's a lot of empirical science that that supports that people of faith deal better with stress. Prayer, you, you probably heard about this about people that pray having better medical outcomes, but people of faith have a have a, a an ethical moral structure that allows them to to think about stress and, re and reduce it. And that has absolutely has a physical impact. So people of faith tend to be more resilient. Not only are they more resilient for themselves, but they tend to be more supportive of their community. And so, for example, one of the things that we see is one of the most effective responders in a disaster in a community are, is not the government, 
uh, it's faith-based organizations. And we see this today. I mean, how many people turn on the TV and they see a story in the news about a, a, job, a, a food bank at some church? Uh, so self-organizing faith-based organizations tend to be really the backbone of a community. So faith absolutely enables people to survive better. I definitely would agree with that. I know lately I've been leaning on a lot of faith over fear, um, and that really helps me get through some of the decision-making I've had to make lately. Um, I totally agree. All right, last but not least, Annie, get your gun. So one of the interesting, really interesting things about the disaster literature is there's virtually nothing in there about personal safety and security. Uh, as if people that they, they, they're responsible for their own food and water and heat and everything else, but on public safety, don't worry about that. I guess the, the cops are going to show up and protect you. I, I think that's a, because there's so much uh, controversy in public about, about how we handle public safety issues that disaster experts don't address it not because it's not a real thing, but just because it's so kind of laden with politics and, and controversy. Um, the reality is, is that capacity to protect yourself and your family does significantly reduce your stress. And it does make you more confident and better able to deal with stressful situations, even if you don't actually have to you know, protect your family in a shootout. So I said, get a gun. Uh, but there are obviously many different ways that you can improve your own public safety um, in the security of your home. You can take self-defense lessons, which also would help you being more physically fit, but you can also get a gun. There's absolutely nothing wrong with getting a gun as a personal protective measure for your family. Even if you never use it and never draw it, sometimes just the notion of owning the gun, the sense of independence and protection, that again, allows you to deal more constructively with stress. And one of the things I talked about in, in, in the book, which sadly is no longer in print, which I have to say, I don't really understand how an ebook can be out of print. There you go. Um, you know, I said, there's so many things you can do to, to be a responsible gun owner, and, and it's relatively easy. Uh, I was in the military for 25 years. I was around firearms all the time. A modicum of gun safety training makes you more than prepared to, to deal with a gun. Um, very basic instructions about how to uh, secure the gun at home. Um, lots of places you can go to get information about the, the gun laws in your state. So you're appropriately following the laws in your state. Gun ownership is a perfectly responsible thing. And it is a way to do that. There are other ways as well. Uh, you know, in some ways, these are all just, just metaphors. But the reality is, is the more resilient uh, and self-confident people are, and these are all things that contribute to that, the more likely they are to live in a disaster. But here's what's really magic about these things. is If you think about it, all those attributes – uh, healthy, faith, marriage, and education, a job. Uh, they make you better prepared to deal with real life as well. 
You may never, ever face another thing like the COVID pandemic in your lifetime, but it doesn't matter because if you do those things, they're going to make you better prepared for everyday life. So I think they really are the core of what I would call preparedness in, in the United States. I think it's unrealistic. For example, if, if you're a low-income family and you're, you're worried about putting food on the table every day, the notion that you're going to stockpile food and medical supplies in your basement for disaster is pretty ludicrous. You're just worried about getting through the next 24 hours. Um, in contrast, I think these things are things that we can frame our life around that whether a rich, poor, we're going to be, we're going to be better off. And the other thing is, is these things have nothing to do with wealth. Uh, if you actually look at the data, whether communities recover from a disaster uh, or not, and how quickly they do that, actually wealth doesn't have as near much to do with it as the attributes of the community. A strong, resilient community uh, made up of, of uh, family faith structures. Example, for example, remember Greensburg, Kansas, a number of years ago, it was leveled by a tornado. It's not a not a rich community, not a not a bunch of PhDs. Uh, that community recovered tremendously because it, living in that community, there were a lot of people that we just kind of talked about, and that, that so there's great resilience in that. So I, I think this is an approach to life, and and sadly, I think if you go through this list. A lot of these things, you know, if we had, you know, different, you know, progressives and liberals and they don't be arguing about this stuff, you know, as if, you know, being married isn't virtuous or how dare you suggest that somebody should have to be healthy. They should, they should have their right to be obese if they want to. I'm not arguing any of this. You don't want to be, you don't want to believe in God, fine. You don't want to exercise, fine. I'm just saying with the science and the real data says, which is these are people who are more productive, happy, content human beings. doesn't matter if they've got a million dollars in the bank. Um, some, of that, some of the most unhappy people I know are fabulously wealthy and privileged. I, I don't know anybody that fits into the category I, I just described who is not a happy person. I've never met one. Maybe, I'm sure maybe they're out there somewhere. But I've never seen them. It's so true when you think about it that way. You're right. There there would be tremendous arguments going on, you know, about what's politically correct or not or uh, about each one of these things. It's fascinating. All right, Jim, in conclusion, I hope you don't mind me asking you a slightly personal question. I think it's a good way to wrap this interview Um because I just love where your mind is on all of these issues. A couple months ago, when everybody was running to the store to hoard toilet paper and paper towel, what were you doing? So, you know, again, I've been deal dealing with uh, disaster response issues for many, many decades. Uh, you know, I look at the supply chains in the United States, and I just thought that was ridiculous. The notion that somehow we were going to run out of toilet paper, first, first of all, I think like 98% of the toilet paper is actually made in the United States. So it's not like we have to go overseas and get this or something. So, uh, you know, I, I have to confess we, we did not stockpile paper. But I, I also have to confess my wife does keep like three rolls of toilet paper in, in both bathrooms religiously. And, and when we're down a roll of toilet paper, she'll say, oh, my God, we're down a roll of toilet paper. And I respond, oh, my God, what happens if the zombie apocalypse starts tomorrow? Uh, yeah, actually, I got to be honest with you. I hardly ever wear a mask when I go outside. If you listen to what they're actually saying, masks are, are somewhat useful 
in areas where you cannot effectively social distance. So if you're out walking in the park and you are 300 feet from the nearest human being, wearing that mask is doing nothing. And now we've actually seen you know, people attacking other people for not wearing masks. And it's more yeah. signaling, right? It's about they either don't understand the science or it's like, well, if I have to wear a mask, everybody should have to wear a mask. And that's not the way to deal with disasters. You know, we keep saying it's it's the science, it's the data, it's the experts. It's it's doing doing things which make common sense, which is why I think in some respects, people in some places are protesting now. And they look in their county and they have no cases of COVID and they have a hospital that is completely running up to capacity, has, you know, and and they've got plenty of testing and they ask, why can't I go get my haircut? You know, and the answer is, is there's not a good argument why they can't go get their haircut. So um, I, I think we, we do have to take some responsibility for for our own lives. That's that's the way democracy is built. We elect people, um, but then we just don't turn our brains off. You know, we elect them, and if we don't like what they're saying, we use our common sense to kind of argue against that. The other thing, some people would ask, well, what about survivalists? What about these prepper guys? You know, people that really take this to a science. I mean, they have their own generator and they you know, live in the woods and they grow their own food. And I, the, I look, I don't have any problem with preppers or any of that stuff. I mean, a lot of people are really into this. I look at that as more of a hobby as, rather than a real strategy. I mean, I, if you want to do those things and they make you happy uh, to live in the woods without electricity, you know, go for it. Um, you have the freedom to do that, but that's not how people are really going to survive. If you think about it, you've got your, freeze-dried chicken chop suey, but if everybody else is dead, what are you gonna do? And you've got your generator, but when nobody, when there's no gas to buy anymore, what are you gonna do? We're not gonna survive as a species by living in a cabin in the woods. If, if somebody wants to practice that and have a bomb shelter, you know, God bless, but we're gonna survive as a species because we are a family of humans and we're going to fight to regain the civil society, the economic freedom, the political freedom, because that's where our species really thrives. It's not about surviving. I mean, you watch these shows like The Walking, and, and people get bored with them after a while. It's because, like, why bother? I mean, who wants to live in, in, in a Hobbesian world like that? The, the goal of getting through a disaster is to get back to the world we love, not to be the last man standing. Thank you so much, Jim. This is a really useful conversation. We really appreciate every time you can join us on Heritage Explains. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. I'll leave a link to Jim's op-ed in our show notes. Also, if you liked this episode, I think you'd really like my conversation with General Tom Spore on the potential of an EMP attack. I'll link to that as well. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating, a review, or some kind of feedback wherever you're listening. I hope you're all well, and I can't wait to get back to recording in my studio instead of my closet. Tim is up next week. We'll see you then. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.